few moments and greet each other in the Lord. Let's stand up and just turn around and shake hands with a few folks around you. All right, let's return to our seats now. As you're returning, I want to remind you of the Thanksgiving blessing that's coming up. And if you uh, have not yet given some stovetop stuffing to this cause, um, our wall of stuffing is being built, but it's only a third of what we need so far just to keep that before us. Um, Let's pray one more time. Fathers, we open your word. I pray, God, that you would illumine our hearts. Give grace now for us to hear your truth. It's one thing to be a hearer superficially and just read and listen to words. It's another thing to be affected by truth. And, Lord, we're studying a high and lofty truth tonight from your, this morning from your word. And I pray, God, that you, would, that you would break through our hearts and, God, give us grace to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning I'm diving right into 2 Thessalonians Second Thessalonians is the second part of what we began six, eight months ago. We finished, began and finished First Thessalonians. Now we're sort of completing the study by going into these three chapters, Second Thessalonians. And I'm going to dive right into the heart of this chapter this morning because there's a dominant sort of compelling theme that we find before us, and that is the theme of the wrath of God. You might be thinking, wow, this is going to be a very comforting, sort of enjoyable morning. But we're going to be studying the wrath of God. And as we study the wrath of God in the way that the Apostle Paul describes it, and in the circumstances that he is teaching the wrath of God, you find that this is actually a very pastoral point that's being made. And that when you understand that God's wrath is essential to who God is, And it's essential to understand if we're going to give God ultimate and maximal glory, then you begin to understand how Paul can use that theme, God's wrath, to pastor a church and to shepherd them. Verses 5 through 10 is discussing the wrath of God. And this is an incredibly ungrammatical run-on sentence. And it's near and dear to my heart because I love to write in run-on sentences. I really do. This is called devotional writing. This is where you sort of go off the grid with English grammar and just spill your heart out about God. And that's what Paul is doing to shepherd these people. A couple preliminary thoughts about the wrath of God just before we dive in. The doctrine of the wrath of God is unique to God. It is unique to his person. He is the only one who can wear this doctrine. And another point, the only holy version of wrath is God's version. 
We're called in the New Testament to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. We're called to be like Christ in that way. We just learned about that in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not Old Testament Israel that would slay God's enemies in the name of God as a holy nation. The church in the Middle Ages actually did that. Remember the Crusades and the Crusaders who, in the name of God, would slay infidels and would say, look, believe or you get the sword. I mean, that was the modus operandi of the medieval church, and that was not biblical. God's wrath is necessary. It's necessary because God is holy, and God is not passive about sin, and so understanding the wrath of God answers some questions for how God deals with sin. He's allowed for it. He's got to deal with it. And God would not be the God of the Bible as a holy God if we didn't have an answer to how he deals with sin, how he deals with liars and murderers and rapists and thieves and and false teachers. If there were no consequences, God would be a pretty passive God, right? So we have to understand his wrath. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is describing, discussing, and teaching through several points and promises about the wrath of God to do a couple things for the church. Number one, he's affirming the church. They're going through a lot, and we're going to learn about that, and he wants to affirm them with this doctrine called the wrath of God. And we'll tie that together in a moment. He also wants to comfort, comfort them. He wants to relieve their minds. He wants to set them at ease by discussing the wrath of God. And this can seem very odd. How do you talk about God exacting vengeance on sin and sinners? And how is that comforting to the church? But when you understand that the wrath of God is an essential attribute of God... It's part of what makes God, God, and enables us to glorify God. When you understand that, then it's easy to see how this doctrine can comfort us. Because we as a church need to give glory to God and feed on this God who is just. Well, why God's wrath is essential to his glory is explained in three promises. We're looking at three promises concerning the wrath of God here. And this church needed these promises. And I'm sure you do as well. We need to understand God in this way. And I'll show you how Paul pastors this church with these promises. Well, first, let me tell you what's going on. This church is the church at Thessalonica, and it picks up three months later after 1 Thessalonians was written. The church in Thessalonica, was founded by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. If you go to Acts chapter 17, you can kind of learn the story, how they laid the foundation, they preached the gospel, and a small group believed, and there was some persecution. And Paul and Silas ultimately left for safety, and and Paul ended up in Corinth and was writing a letter back to Thessalonica to check on them. And he sent Timothy down there sort of as his proxy. Timothy came and saw Paul and went back and forth and was giving communication to Paul just to tell Paul how this church was doing. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, it says that the church was excelling in faith, hope, and love, and that their faith was growing. And they were marked out as an example throughout the region of churches. Churches knew that they were a godly church. He, they knew that this church was young but doing well, even under persecution and duress. 
And so they were commended. They lived in a major trade route area, a very commercial area where fishing boats and commerce would be going back and forth. And just as Paul was in a cosmopolitan city, this church was in a pagan, cosmopolitan, sort of New York City-like setting. And it was holding up. It was doing okay. But 2 Thessalonians sort of begins with something that wasn't going so well. Timothy had told Paul, listen, the church was really undergoing a lot of affliction. Now, the word affliction, we find that word in in verse 4. It says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let me just explain to you what the word affliction means, just so you understand what was going on. It's one thing to suffer because of hardships, because of diseases that befall you, or sicknesses, or mishaps, or accidents. Sort of enduring things because of the the fall, because we live in a fallen world. It's an entirely different thing, and sort of a ramped up category, to undergo affliction. Affliction is when bad people do wicked things to you on purpose. That's what it means to be afflicted. Uh, People throughout the world are afflicted at varying degrees, but you don't have to be here too long for someone to backbite you and to, to say something in a gossiping way behind your back. You don't have to be here too long before someone's doing you wrong in your company or doing you wrong within your present situation or your family is turning against you or things are happening where you are afflicted. Affliction. It's part of the fallen world we live in, but it's personal. And here it was personal with this church because they were being afflicted for their own personal convictions, for what they believed. And so they were hurting and they were struggling says that verse 1, Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy were writing to them, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was giving a common greeting, again affirming the deity of Jesus Christ, putting Jesus on equal par with the Father. Then verse 3 says, we ought always to give thanks to you, to you, Thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So things are going well in general. Your faith is growing. That's what you want to hear as a Christian. That was the report Timothy was giving back to Paul. But then verse 4 introduces the struggle. The struggle. Though they were growing and they were being boasted in by Paul... They were undergoing persecutions and afflictions. And Paul wants to pastor them through this difficulty. They were undergoing such raw affliction that their faith was beginning to be shaken. They actually were beginning to doubt some of the teaching that Paul and Silas and Timothy had given them that we find in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture. And about how Jesus was going to come back and scoop them up as a collective believing church and wrest them away from persecution. Wrest them away from the affliction that was coming at the day of the Lord. And so this church, it was being afflicted so much that it was beginning to think, man, did I misunderstand the teaching on the rapture? I thought I was supposed to be rescued away from this. 
and I'm undergoing this. Or, or maybe the day of the Lord is happening right now. It's so ugly and awful right now. Maybe that's happening right now. Revelation chapter 6 through 18 stuff. The bold judgments. Is that what's taking place? Is that what this is about? Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, the rapture, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, which would be a teaching or teacher, or a spoken word or a letter concerning or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so this church was on the verge of sort of shaking up and uh, shaking apart. And they were having a very difficult time reconciling the affliction that they were under. I'm sure you've been there where you, you say, listen, I know we're supposed to suffer trials and tribulations, but this is personal. It's hurting me. It's depressing me. It's making me want to implode inside. And so you begin to say, why, God? How do I make sense of this? And that's what Paul is trying to do for them. He's trying to calm this church down with a Bible study on the wrath of God. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> you know, it, it, this is kind of a, an opportunity to learn how to counsel somebody with the doctrine of the wrath of God. You know, if you ever want to come by my office and be counseled, you're kind of falling apart. I'll say, hey, let's sit down and study the wrath of God for 30 minutes right now. Might seem a little strange, right? I'm trying to keep my counseling door, door locked, I guess, by presenting this mo- method of counseling. But that's what Paul did here. He counseled with a study on a high view of God who's going to recompense evil deeds. It's explained in three promises. And the first promise regarding the wrath of God is God promises to recompense every evil act. The word recompense is simply the word for repay. He's going to repay evil men for doing evil things to God's people. And the payment is precise. It's precise. Look at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Paul's talking about the fact that they were being afflicted. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just... To repay with affliction those who afflict you. This is a promise. God is going to afflict enemies for afflicting the church. That's his promise. We begin with the means. The means is God will repay every evil person for every act committed. That idea isn't new um, to the Bible. You probably have studied in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus or Leviticus, what's called lex talionis. It's also in Deuteronomy, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's the idea of equal or like kind retribution that's handed out when you do some, somebody wrong. Well, this is the New Testament version of that. And this is what God promises to do for us. Verses 5 and 6, I have to confess, were kind of confusing for me at first. I really had to wrestle with what these verses mean and how this all fit, fits together. I mean, in one sense, verse 5 is Paul saying, listen, 
I want to affirm you that there's, there's evidence that you're enduring suffering. There's, there's evidence here that you are to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And Paul's trying to affirm them, but then he shifts gears, it seems like, and begins to talk about how God is going to repay these sinners for doing this harm to them. He's going to bring retribution. So how does that fit with affirming the church and God judging these enemies? And then I just thought about it. You know, the reason God puts verse 6 in there about repaying affliction is because God in the first place is using the affliction as a test to put pressure on the church so that they would rise up and show themselves to be the real thing. In other words, God's modus operandi here is to allow for enemies to bring affliction upon the church, upon these beloved people, his flock. And the only way that that can be explained as a holy act is for us to understand that in the end, even though God allowed for enemies to afflict the church, he's going to repay them for that in the end. He's allowing for enemies to afflict people, but at the same time, God is promising to pay them back for it in the end. That's actually an encouragement to the church because the church is understanding, listen, there's a reason for why we're being afflicted. There's a reason that somebody is saying mean things about me or trying to destroy my character or trying to harm me or trying to harm my family for my faith. There's a reason. And God is using that to affirm me as a Christian. And then he's promising that he's going to repay these enemies for doing that in the end. When you understand the wrath of God in that way, it can actually bring encouragement to your heart. Turn over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is where Peter and the apostles were struggling. They were preaching the gospel and they were being beat up by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they were being arrested and then they were being freed and they were being put in front of Roman officials. And if you look at verse 29, well, verse 28, it says that the Pharisees strictly charged them not to teach in this name. And then they said, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're, you're going to keep teaching and people are going to get mad at us and come after us. And so you need to cut it out. You need to stop doing that or we're going to put you in prison. We're going to beat you up for it. What does Peter say? He says what any Christian should say when governing authorities tell us not to preach the gospel. He says, we must obey God rather than men. We're going to stand up and we're going to keep preaching. And that's exactly what they did. If you look down in uh, the later verses, verses 40 and following, when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus And then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. How does a Christian do that? Peter and the apostles 
What they did is they understood that they were part of a greater mission, a greater cause. And so they didn't take the beating personally. They understood that that God was going to take care of those who were afflicting them. And they said, listen, the real point of all this is that I was counted worthy to take part in God's mission at all. That's what Paul is doing with the Thessalonians. He wants them to get their eyes off of themselves, off of their afflictions, and understand that God is going to repay the afflictors by afflicting them in the end. And really, as you are beat up for the gospel, you're really being affirmed that you are the real thing in the first place. It magnifies God's glory. It explains how God can allow evil to be done against his people. And it also magnifies God's chief concern, which is his glory. When we are afflicted, the glory is not about us. It's not about who we are. It's about glorifying God. Affliction doesn't make us worthy or cause us to be worthy. Affliction actually stamps out our sin and is part of our spiritual growth. I love the way John Calvin sort of commented on this verse, verses 5 and 6. John Calvin said, No persecution is of such profit to us that it may make us worthy of the kingdom of God, nor is Paul arguing here about the cause of worthiness. He simply, he is simply taking the common doctrine of Scripture that God, I love this, God destroys in us what is of the world in order to restore a better life within us. He goes on to say, we are being polished beneath the anvil of God. By means of affliction, believers renounce the world and aim at God's heavenly kingdom. So do you, do you view affliction in this way? It's difficult to. It's difficult to get our eyes off of ourselves. But when we understand that the wrath of God is really all about the glory of God, it lifts our hearts up because we say, you know what? God, you're in charge of those who are afflicting me. And God, you will repay them for the harm that they do to me or do to others. And so it's your business, not my own. And so I'm just going to give you glory. That's what Paul is doing. He's getting them to see this promise And to understand that this promise is a promise of affirmation that they're the real thing. Here's the second promise. Second promise. God promises to exact vengeance on behalf of the church. God promises to exact vengeance on behalf of the church. I chose these words very specifically. Exacting vengeance, what that means is that God is the precise and only being that's qualified to take vengeance on behalf of the church. He's the only one that can be the righteous judge because he's perfectly holy. He is. As believers, we can anticipate that God will bring judgment, but we're never called to administer God's judgment. We aren't. Not as believers. Verse 7. There's actually relief that's granted. Look at this. God's going to repay With affliction, those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Let's stop there. What does the word relief mean? I mean, how are believers supposed to be relieved understanding that Jesus is going to come back 
and bring vengeance on behalf of the church. The word relief here is literally a word that means to loosen. It's the idea that your mind can be set at ease and relax. You can, you can be unbound inside. Because you realize this. Your role is not to exact or take vengeance on your behalf. That's Jesus' role. Vengeance is mine, says who? The Lord. It's the Lord's job, not our job. Our heart, when we are attacked or we have someone that we have um, angst or struggle with, our heart is one where we give love, we give uh, charity, we give respect for people, and we love even our enemies. That's what causes the Christian to stand out. And the only way we can do that is when we understand that God's going to repay people for their evil deeds, and it's God's role to do that. That's, that's what he is supposed to do. That's not our job. In Acts chapter 24, verse 23, Paul is talking to Felix and defending the faith before Felix the judge. And Felix has some compassion on him as a judge, and he gave orders to the centurion, the guards, that he should keep, that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. That's the same word as relief here. Have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. In other words, Paul, when you're put in prison, you're not going to be under sort of maximum security. You're going to be able to be visited. You're going to have your needs met. Friends can come and fellowship with you. And that sense of relief that Paul had in his heart is the same word that's used here of the Thessalonians. They're they're not bound up as much. They know they're, they're taking some hits personally and as a church, but they also know that God is going to bring his righteous and holy, wrathful vengeance on their behalf. And it sets their minds at ease. It grants relief to them. And look at how the wrath is going to come. Uh, It's going to come from the Lord Jesus, who's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, afflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Stop there. Is this the Jesus that you know of in the scripture? This is the carpenter's son. This is the, the baby who was laid in the manger, okay? This is Jesus. He's the one who, who came and, and put the servant's robe around his waist and bent down and washed the disciples' feet. He's the one who went up to the little girl and said, Talitha kum, little girl arise. He's the one who, who bound up the brokenhearted. He's the one who, who, who was tender and meek and mild, and lowly, who was mocked, who was beaten, who was killed. He's also the one who rose again, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who, as Revelation 19 says, will come back on a white horse with a sword that's two-edged that will extend from his mouth and he will smite the enemies and his robe is dipped in blood because blood is going to be spattered like in a wine press of his enemies that are going to be strewn abroad over the world where the vultures can come and eat up the carcasses of his enemies. Do you know that Jesus too? Jesus was as tender as he is tough and as tough as he is tender. This is the God-man. This is our God who we serve. And this is the one who will take vengeance on our behalf. 
And we understand it's not our job to take our own vengeance. You know, I think of uh, Romans chapter 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to what? Leave it to the wrath of God. Is that not some direct counsel that, that jives with this text? How do you apply this? Well, don't take revenge for yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to what's talked about here. What's going to happen? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus' disciples needed this counsel. They were walking with Jesus. And Luke chapter 9, you might turn there, verses 51 to 55, is an interesting story where they were with Jesus with a full cadre of disciples and followers, probably 30 or 40 men and women. And they were moving from place to place with Jesus, traveling around, and Jesus was healing the sick and raising the dead and, and teaching his message of good news. But it, in Luke chapter 9, there's a very decided shift in emphasis in terms of Jesus' mission because it says in Luke 9 that he is now headed with his face set like flint towards Jerusalem. And he's got on his mind the cross and the fact that he's going to give his life. And so he's about six or three months away from dying on the cross and they're headed to Jerusalem. And they're actually going to go straightway through Samaria to get there. And if you know anything about Samaritan culture during that time, you know that they were at odds with the Jews. They were sort of a, a group of, of people who had created their own race where they had intermarried uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so you've got Judaism and sort of a Jewish heritage and Old Testament law synchronized with pagan beliefs. And so you've got this sort of racial tension and then you've got religious tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. It would be like sort of cohabitating as Christians with sort of a Christian Mormon group or a Christian J JW group and trying to get along. And so Jesus is coming with his disciples to sort of invade this small little village town called Samaria. I mean, this is not like a metropolitan area. This is a small village town. And you see that Jesus actually sent disciples ahead as emissaries and as sort of ambassadors to say, hey, just by the way, we're showing up. That we're not trying to take over. We're not an army. We're just going to be coming into your town. So you need to know that that's happening. Verse 51 says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him. Um, and they entered into the village of the Samaritans to make preparations. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus was coming as the Messiah, in other words, and the Samaritans didn't get it and didn't want him. You get it? So the disciples said, man, we need to have pity and compassion on these people. Can we pray with them? Let's, let's just have a long, enduring, long-fused labor of love with them. Let's give them... No, look at this. And the sons of thunder. And when the disciples James and John, known as the sons of thunder, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, wouldn't that be reasonable? Isn't that our role at this juncture right now with this village group? Let's just... Let's just drop a bomb on the village. Okay, Jesus, that'll be fun, you know. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now John had just been rebuked before this story. It says that um, John was sort of being a snob toward a religious group that he didn't jive with. And Jesus rebuked him for that. And then he turns and rebukes him and rebukes James. 
for saying this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We, we need to leave it to the wrath of God when people are against us. The Lord Jesus, it says, will be revealed on our behalf in a group of fiery angels. Look at this. With his mighty angels in flaming fire. What's the significance of these angels being, you know, lighted up and fiery? I mean, aren't angels supposed to be sort of these soft, angelic, like, you know, toddler two, toddler three, you know, beings that fly and say niceties and look nice on stamps? No, these are, these are beings that are coming in the name of God's wrath. And when you think of fire, you need to be thinking in terms of God's holiness. Like in Exodus 3, when God met Moses in the bush that was burning but not being consumed in the land of Midian. What did God say in that theophany, in that vision of God? What did he say to Moses? He said, take off your shoes. You stand on holy ground. God's wrath is going to come with righteous, perfect, holy judgment. And it's sort of depicted through these flames of fire. Isaiah prophesied of this event that Paul is picking up on in 2 Thessalonians. It's so interesting to do some studies sometimes where you find it in the Old Testament. It picks up in the New Testament through Jesus' teaching or Paul's teaching. And then you find it in Revelation. And so this scene is splashed across the panoramic shot of the Bible. Isaiah 66 verses 15 and 16 is almost word for word describing this event of the day of the Lord. Verse 15, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Who's Isaiah talking about? Verse 16, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Who's Isaiah talking about? He doesn't even know Jesus Christ yet. He, he probably knew of a Messiah to come. He's talking about the Lord, but Paul is saying, look, the man who Isaiah was talking about is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus is the mighty warrior who will come and slay our enemies. Jesus is the one spoken of in Isaiah 66 and Daniel chapter 7 as the son of man who's going to come in the cloud. Jesus called himself the son of man all through the gospels. That's his most often used name of himself. Second Thessalonians here he's coming as the God who will punish in the host of fiery angels. And Revelation 19 picks up on this as well. Flaming fire. And he's judging those, look at this in verse 8, who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Who are those people? Well, the ones who did not know God are the Gentiles. Remember, this is a pagan nation. It's pagan land. They're the ones who never were uh, familiarized with the Old Testament. So they they never knew of God. They're Gentiles and they're going to be judged. And then unbelieving Jews are the ones who did not obey the gospel. Remember, Jesus came, he offered himself, he is the good news. The Jews rejected Jesus by and large. 
And they are the category, Paul is speaking of, those who do not obey the gospel. So both Jews and Gentiles will be judged in the end. Here's the third promise. Third promise that's essential for God's glory is that God promises unbelievers and believers will have opposite outcomes. To understand the glory of God and the wrath of God is to understand that it is both glorious for God to judge eternally unbelievers as it is for God to affirm and reward believers eternally. Both outcomes are glorious to God. And the church needs to understand that. This church needed to know that, to reconcile how I could be being afflicted as God's church. I'm being afflicted, I'm having a tough time, I'm undergoing unjust persecutions. But the more I understand that God's going to repay these unbelievers for that, and he's the one who's going to do it. And, I, and beginning to understand that the outcomes, even unbelievers being destroyed eternally and believers being saved, all of these things are glorious. The more I understand this, the more I'm comforted. Again, look at verse 9. Unbelievers, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is a severe condemnation on unbelievers. Unbelievers will suffer eternal ruination. A lot of people these days will promote kind of a, an, a doctrine of hell that isn't true to the Bible, that isn't eternal. They'll promote an idea that when you go to hell, you are annihilated. It would be like saying someone is eternally annihilated. They just go away. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about eternal destruction. It's being destroyed and an ongoing state of being destroyed. It's eternal ruination. What's worse than just thinking about the pain and suffering of hell is to remember that hell is hopeless and hell is a place where you are eternally deserted by God. It's one of the most sickening statements or thoughts about hell to me is to think that you're there and you're out of the presence of the Lord and hopeless to find him. Once you've tasted of the goodness of God and you you love this God, a God who is fully love and fully just at the same time, the total package of who he is, once you've tasted of this kind of God, you don't want any other being in your life to be your Lord. And I just believe that people who go to hell will get a glimpse of who God is and then not have him forever. And I think that's one of the saddest commentaries on the nature of hell. Eternal destruction, here it is, away from the presence of the Lord. What's the glory of heaven? To be apart from the body is to be in the what? Presence of the Lord. Uh, we, shall, we shall see him, you know, we see him dimly now, as in a mirror reflection that's kind of blurry, but one day we'll see him what? Face to face. That's the joy of heaven. That's the glory of being saved now. We have spiritual eyesight where we see God in a special, unique way. And it's powerful and it's a foretaste of heaven. That's what unbelievers will not have. And then lastly, unbelievers, they're eternally deprived 
from the glory of God. They don't get to bask in the glory of his might. But believers do. Look look at verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you has was believed. Do you know that because you believed, you will join in God's glory when he returns? I mean, imagine this. You're numbered amongst the saints of all generations, of all times, of everyone who's ever believed, and we get to reflect God's glory when he returns. That's what it's talking about. He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. We're part of the crowd where Jesus is the centerpiece. That's the glory of heaven. We get eternal identification with Christ being co-equal heirs. And then we are, we are eternally in awe of him. Verse 10, marveling at him. We're like the crowds that sat and marveled at Jesus' teaching. That we're in awe of the words that were falling from the lips of Christ. But now this is magnified a million fold where we are in glory and we are unhindered by our sin because it's been thrown away from us. And we are glorified, enjoined in God's glory and basking in his presence in awe, marveling at who he is because we believed. We didn't disobey. We didn't run away from Christ. We believed in him. Here's the wrap up. Verses 11 and 12, to this end, we always pray for you. Paul's saying, I want to comfort you with this doctrine. I'm praying for you in light of this, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every, every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. You know what Paul's saying? I'm praying for you that you'll keep keeping on as a Christian, even though you're suffering affliction. That this doctrinal teaching that God is going to right all the wrongs, the wrath of God, because I've just taught you that, I'm praying that God will fill your heart with some perseverance, with some horsepower for you to keep going, even though it's really tough right now. I want you to keep going. I want you to not flatline and be shaken up and fall apart. I want you to stay strong in the Lord. And why, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. In other words, so God is glorified And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a few take-home points. I just want to remind you as a congregation, we have the take-home points listed for you to pick up if you didn't get one on the way in. We always have them also posted online. Number one, see a balanced view of God. You know, if you don't have the God who is love and just and the God who will bring wrath, you don't have God at all. He's the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New. Jesus was both tough and tender. Number two, keep a balanced view of people. Please do not take a sermon on the wrath of God and use it as the way to become a spiritual snob. Please do not look down your long nose at other people and say, Aha, you know what? I'm safe and I am not going to be touched by the wrath of God, but you infidel, you will. You know, you you just don't want to do that. You don't want to be that. You know, the, the wrath of God, understanding the judgment of God is understanding that but by the grace of God, we all would have come under the wrath of God. We all deserved it. We did. But we believed. God's wrath and justice should soften, not harden our hearts, right? 
We should melt for people with compassion and mercy and say, in the gospel of grace, you can be spared from the wrath of God. God is a lion, but he's also a lamb, right? We need to be soft towards other people. The mercy of the cross was never deserved or fair. All right, number three. This is sort of the centerpiece of the morning. Everything kind of comes back to the cross and needs to. If you want to have a clear picture of the wrath of God, understand that the Son of God absorbed the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. You know why Jesus, who's the Son of God, said, Father, please, if at all possible, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. You know why he said that? It wasn't because he was afraid of getting drilled in the hands and the feet. It wasn't because of the crown of thorns. It wasn't because he was going to be suffocated on the cross. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. It was because he did not want to have to undergo the millions and billions and trillions of sins that were going to be laid upon him and the wrath of God that was the full weight of it to be to be exacted against him. He didn't want to have to go through that, even though he knew it was coming and that he was the son of God. He didn't want to have to undergo that. That's why on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the psalmist from Psalm 22, not because he didn't know that he was going to the cross, not because he didn't know the terms in which he was undergoing. He knew he was going to endure the wrath of God. It just was so bad during that time. He was asking, reflecting on the psalmist and how the psalmist asked, how long do I have to endure this? That's what Jesus was doing. He was saying, my God, my God, how long do I have to endure this suffering, this barrier between you and me? It wasn't a cry of distrust. He was saying, my God, my personal God, the one that I know. The one who captured this best for me was Wayne Grudem. This kind and degree of suffering is forever unparalleled, and I think his statement captured it. Only Jesus could have borne this suffering. Well, here's his quote. To bear the guilt of millions of sins for even a moment would cause the greatest anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute, or two, or ten. Hour after hour it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God poured over Jesus in wave after wave. He did that for me. He did it for you. Let's not forget it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can dive deeply into this text and learn about all of who you are. You are a holy, righteous judge. And you are the Lord over all events. You are the Lord over all righteous deeds. And you are the Lord who superintends and ultimately will recompense and repay all evil deeds that are ever done. Father, we are eternally grateful that you have paid for our evil deeds, that which we've done, that's that which we are doing, the, the sinful thought that we're about to have, the, the sinful thing we're about to do today, the sinful thing we'll do tomorrow or next week or next year, what we'll do when we're, when we're old, what we'll do before we die, You have paid for all of that. You absorbed all of that on the cross, and we are eternally grateful. 
Thank you, God, for a study on your wrath. Lord, we don't want to look down spiritually at anyone. We want to preach the gospel to people so that they would be spared from the wrath of God. But when people afflict us, let us remember that you will rightfully judge all of those evil deeds and that we do not need to take it personally. Help us to be shepherded by this pastoral teaching, understanding that vengeance is yours and that you are holy and that we bow before you and submit to you in our lives and we give to you this week and let us glorify you as a church that is enduring and growing in faith because of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.